You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 30th of September, 2019, on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. It certainly demonstrates that people on the ground, particularly young people, are sort of saying, well, we're not interested in backing down, regardless of whatever pressure you're interested in putting on. With the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic looming, protests in Hong Kong show little sign of abating. My guests, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Peter Goodman, will discuss this and the day's other news, including... Australia's Attorney General says he must be consulted before the country's press can be prosecuted. Plus... Perry is a fine artist. He fires beautiful pots, draws well, and mixes beauty with intellect and the decorative with the significant, with the raw talent of very few others. Monocle's senior editor Robert Baum takes a look at an iconic English potter's latest throw. I'm Daniel Bage. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined today by author and broadcaster Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Peter Goodman, global economics correspondent for The New York Times. Welcome both. We turn our attention first to Hong Kong, where over the weekend, the city-state experienced some of the worst violence since the anti-government protests began in June. Sunday's unrest began in Causeway Bay and spread across the city, where protesters clashed with police in three of Hong Kong's main commercial districts. And all this just as China prepares to mark the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party's rule on Tuesday. A huge cleanup effort has been underway in the city today, where authorities are also wary of further violence that could embarrass the central government in Beijing. Yasmin, considering the past few months and in view of the weekend's violence, does this look to you like a city on the edge? Yes, I do think it's an interesting time. And I'm always cautious about projecting sort of what um, what may happen in the future. But certainly it does look like things aren't letting up. And certainly it looks like people are feeling some sort of pressure. But there's also, um, given the, uh, the unrest... I think it, it certainly demonstrates that people, the, the people on the ground, particularly young people, are sort of saying, well, we're not interested in backing down regardless or, or of, of, of whatever pressure you're interested in putting on. Uh, Peter, you've been writing a lot about this uh, over the weekend and in recent days. Uh, in, in your most recent article, you've written about a rebellious youth, sort of a class of people who are calling for Hong Kong uh, to be completely free of communist rule. Obviously, this has been uh, the underbelly of these protests for a long time, but it, it, it is quite serious now. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an open challenge to Beijing's authority. And, you know, let's pull back to 22 years ago, 1997, when uh, the British government agreed to hand its colony of Hong Kong back to China. uh, And there was supposed to be this adherence to the doctrine of one China, two systems, where Hong Kong's democratic norms would live on for half a century. And and the idea from Beijing's perspective was, you know, we're going to use Hong Kong to demonstrate uh, that we will uh, promote uh, the continuation of the values that have held there. We're going we're gonna to have the identity of Hong Kong revert back to China, but Hong Kong will continue to function as it has. And in fact, the opposite has happened. So despite a lot of talk in the West that Hong Kong would change China and would be a conduit for democracy and free expression, uh, if anything, China has now changed Hong Kong. And the rebellion, uh, as Yasmin points out, is from young people who in many cases are now responding to the brutality uh, by local police on the demonstrations themselves. And they've come to say, well, you know, this looks 
looks like the face of China. We don't want any part of it. We now don't even see ourselves as part of China. We now see ourselves as as something uh, completely separate. We we want our own uh, independence. That that's a very new development, and that's very alarming to the Chinese Communist Party. And it's very hard to see how that gets put back in the bottle. Hmm. Yeah. Well, over those twenty two years, I, I mean, a lot has changed. Where by people welcomed, I guess, the change of, and China uh, taking control all those years ago. But now it's the mood has really shifted. And it, it, yeah, go ahead. I think the other thing. Um, that you point out, Peter, is that a lot of these young people were either very young in 1997 or were born after. And, and, and this is the shift. It's a generational shift of people who don't even remember um, what time was like before 97. And their experience with China is a very sort of recent and particular form. And and so from an identity point of view, what is their incentive to be a part of of this China that for them looks very particular? At the same time, for Hong Kong, it, it really feels like it, it needs to step forward and, and, you know, tell to the world what what it wants to be, because it has for long, a long time, Peter, uh, been sort of this stable oasis, as you, you write, uh, a long time bridge between the West and between China. But uh, as a financial hub, that's been put into question as well, also because it's not as important to Beijing, perhaps because of the rise of, of Shanghai and places like well, that. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of things that have happened since uh, 97. One of them, as you, as you correctly point out, is, is Shanghai has risen. And so there's now more uh, IPOs. Uh, state-owned uh, Chinese companies now raise more in initial public offerings in Shanghai than they do in Hong Kong. Uh, that's That's been the case now for about a decade. Uh, when the handover happened, you know, China was looking ahead to getting into the World Trade Organization four years later in 2001. They needed a lot of capital. The idea was, you know, factories are going to be booming in China. We're going to need we're going to need to raise capital uh, to meet the demand. And some of that capital is going to come to, from foreigners who are comfortable with the independent judiciary, the freedom of expression, the openness, the connection to the global economy that they find in Hong Kong. Well, since then, you know, China has had this massive build out of port infrastructures. There's five different ports in China that actually uh, carry more traffic now than the port in Hong Kong. But something else has happened that's pretty significant, and that's, you know, Xi Jinping has become president. And so this idea of one China, two systems uh, has really been discounted. Uh, Xi, Xi Jinping has projected Chinese power around the globe. He has crushed dissent at home. Uh, he's very consciously uh, uh, rejected uh, democracy, uh, liberalization, liberal economics as these sort of decadent values of the West. And so while Hong Kong still looks like an important hub for commerce and, and, and finance for Xi, it also looks like a potential hotbed for free expression, which can then uh, generate challenges to the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, this crackdown uh, is coming from a place of fear and confidence at the same time, which may sound perverse, but I, I think that's the way we have to view the Chinese Communist Party. Hmm. Uh, Yasmin, we also saw a solidarity protest yesterday in Australia, but it seems uh, to this point, the international response has been lukewarm at best to mm. what's happening in Hong Kong. Why is that, do you think? And is there a way that we'll see more response from China? 
Yeah, I think it has been interesting to sort of see how the Hong Kong protests, especially given the scale of the protests, like uh, millions of people coming out and it's been going for weeks and months now compared to coverage of, of other protests, compared to climate change protest coverage, compared to even things going on in Sudan and so on. And it is something that I have been wondering. I'm not sure whether it is a um, because it is more associated with uh, something happening in China and therefore not necessarily the West's problem. Or, or something that you know, Western um, news outlets or, or societies can relate to necessarily. Perhaps it's it's a cultural um, difference in that way, or perhaps people don't quite understand how the relationship between Hong Kong and China. And I'm, I guess I'm not talking about people that are interested in the issue, but kind of more broadly, they they don't. You need a little bit of background information to the fact that um, there is this one uh, one China, two systems uh, framework and so on. I'm not sure, but I do think it's interesting that we haven't even, even comparing, even looking at the fact that it has been a broadly leaderless movement that has quite specific um, asks, which is quite unusual when you think of other leaderless movements that we've had in the West, say, um, the Yellow Vests movement or even the Occupy movement, which uh, was criticised for its leaderlessness. I think it's quite interesting that we haven't looked to the Hong Kong movement more for for like guidance on how to have an enormous protest or a movement that continues going. Yeah, there have been some arrests, but only a few high-profile ones. Uh, not, not that much is said about uh, that leadership. Uh, Peter, uh, just an idea I'll float here, perhaps, maybe... You know, since 1997, a lot more business from the West has gone to China as well. And it's not just focused on Hong Kong as a financial hub. Do you right. think that plays a factor here? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, there, there are a couple of reasons why Hong Kong has been diminished, you know, in the global imagination in terms of the attention that it gets. Yeah, one is that foreign direct investment has gone directly into China and no longer feels the need to go through Hong Kong trading companies, Hong Kong banks, Hong Kong marketplaces. Uh, but the other, of course, is that there's a new sort of cold war mindset uh, that's taken hold in Washington and and in Beijing. So, you know, in 97, if you talk to Westerners, if you talk to Clinton administration officials at the time, they would say, you know, it's all about constructive engagement. China will trade with the world and will have its fortunes connected to global marketplaces, and that will require freedom, and, and Hong Kong will then liberalize. Well, that thesis has been pretty well destroyed by Xi Jinping, and you now see in, in the States people across the ideological spectrum from both political parties now very openly criticizing China uh, and uh, gone is this talk of constructive engagement replaced by very hawkish warnings about a sort of new Cold War. So, you know, Hong Kong was supposed to be the sort of neutral ground, this space that could negotiate between China and the West. Now we're in a time where there's sort of polarity, like pick your side. Are you going to gonna uh, take investment from China if you're a developing country? Are you going to have Huawei build your 5G infrastructure uh, or are you going to uh, stick on on the uh, Western side of the fence, the American side of the fence, and and view China as an enemy. Hmm. And, and what about Donald Trump and his take uh, on this and, and where he plays a role in, in that? Because of the, the, the trade war that has been ongoing, uh, Hong Kong is, is sort of cast aside, in a well, sense. Well, I mean, Trump, Trump, as in all areas of foreign policy, you know, says 
differing things depending upon the day, the degree to which he needs a distraction from whatever uh, crisis is bearing down upon him, uh, what the real issue is for the day. I mean, China has sometimes been sort of helpful partner in terms of uh, bringing about some sort of uh, nuclear deal with North Korea, uh, reliably the enemy in terms of his economic nationalist message, and uh, he keeps ratcheting up confrontation through uh, more and higher uh, tariffs, and he seems to like the response that he gets from his base. Mm. Uh, that actually seems to be an, an area where even uh, Democrats uh, and trade unionists are are prone to support him. But on Hong Kong, he's been largely silent. Uh, he, I mean, he's now consumed with an impeachment inquiry at home. Though, you know, no doubt if the day presents itself where siding with Hong Kong protesters seems in his interest, I'm, I'm sure we'll hear that. <laughs> Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Peter Goodman there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Ben Rylan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Daniel. The House of Representatives is set to amp up its impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump this week. A whistleblower who raised concerns about a phone call between Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, in which the U.S. president asked his Ukrainian counterpart to investigate Democrat candidate hopeful Joe Biden, is set to testify before the House. Trump has responded with a tweet suggesting his impeachment could lead to civil war. Dozens of world leaders have gathered in Paris for the funeral of former president Jacques Chirac, who died last week aged 86. He's set to be buried at the Montparnasse Cemetery in the French capital. Jacques Chirac served two terms as president and twice as prime minister. Monocle's Andrew Miller reflects that his long tenure at the heart of French politics wasn't necessarily reflective of his integrity as a politician. Jacques Chirac may have fancied himself as France's Ronald Reagan. He was nearer France's Richard Nixon, a disappointment than a disgrace. His own summary of his career, best imagined accompanied by a Gallic shrug, demonstrates the lack of the moral core around which more substantial leaders are formed. When I was elected, he once said, I was 32 and I joined the government right away, then I just stayed forever. Governments changed, I stayed along with the furniture. And Indonesia has announced that it will reverse plans to close off the island of Komodo. The country had planned to prevent public access to the island to protect the prey and habitat of its most famous occupant, the eponymous and endangered Komodo dragon. But the minister said this will no longer be necessary as closer examination of the figures revealed that the Komodo dragon numbers have in fact been stable for almost two decades. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Daniel. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Bache here with Peter Goodman and Yasmin Abdul-Majid. We move to Australia now, where the Attorney General has announced that prosecutors must seek his approval before charging journalists. This follows a series of liberal policy decisions at a state level, including the decriminalization of cannabis in Canberra and the formal legalization of abortion in Sydney. Uh, Yasmin, could you give us some background on the Attorney General's announcement? Well, I think it's obviously, for, for those who have been following what's been going on in Australia, there there was a raid recently on the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is the sort of the public um, broadcaster in Australia, uh, by prosecutors who are essentially looking at, um, because the ABC had put out uh, a, quite a big report um, on the government's involvement in Afghanistan. 
Okay, and so it was it was quite unprecedented, even and it got worldwide coverage. Even the BBC said it was deeply concerning because obviously um, it was a very public raid. There was even a raid on on journalists' homes and so on. Um, and so I think this is in. In the light of that, I think the the Attorney General has said, well, you know, there has to be perhaps a bit more due process. But I I do think it's interesting to look at more broadly, as you point out, the difference between what's going on at the state level and what's going on nationally in Australia. Nationally, um, it is increasingly conservative. It is increasingly right-wing in the same sort of lens as Boris Johnson and and Donald Trump and and movements around the world. But I think what you're seeing at the state level is attempts to challenge that because the federal level has not been... There hasn't been a force that is um, opposing the, the federal government in a way that has been effective. The, the federal election happened not so long ago and people, the, the general sort of sense in the media was that it was going to be a landslide for the Labour Party and it really was not. And it, there, there was a, there, I went to Australia shortly after the election and there was huge sort of despair in, in the same way that you saw post-Trump, I think, from, from the, the sort of left side of, of, um, of the public who didn't see this coming. And, and so I think what we're seeing is attempts to eat away at the the broader um, federal right wing mentality. My my, th- I'm just not sure how it will play out and where it will go because um, the system is probably closer to the British system than it is the US in that there are some jurisdictions um, that are specifically federal and things like immigration and things like uh, environment and so on are very the, the sort of. Um, cornerstone policies that that the left are campaigning on are very much at the federal level. And so I think people are trying to rebuild some sense of we're working towards some movement um, in the best way they can. But it reminds me, it actually reminds me of, of a book I read um, quite a while ago now by a, a, a man named Michael White called The End of Protest, who talks about how protest movements, people going out on the street, have not been as effective in the last sort of 10, 15 years. And actually what you, what people need to do is relearn how to convert the movement on the streets into political power. And that, I think, is the shift that people are trying to do to um, to shift the, the many hundreds of thousands and millions of people on the streets to actual change politically. And, and that's the bit that we're still not getting. What about then the role of the media in that equation? Uh, you know, media bosses in Australia have described uh, the announcement from the Attorney General as a bit toothless, but uh, I-, I wonder about um, the place of investigative journalists, whistleblowers, and, you know, the media in in talking about these movements or in, in law. What do you think about that, Peter? Well, I mean, this crisis, as Yasmin points out, uh, this raid on the ABC is the result of the ABC's very enterprising reporting and getting hold of uh, internal Defense Department documents in Australia showing that Australian special forces engaged in some very, very troubling practices in Afghanistan, including you know murdering uh, unarmed civilians. So there clearly is a tradition of serious investigative reporting, but it has to be said there is not a tradition of protection of freedom of expression that I think uh, is... Uh, 
those of us in other developed democracies are accustomed to. Uh, now, uh, the states is the outlier. The states actually has a very explicit constitutional guarantee of freedom of expression. Uh, the government cannot preemptively uh, prohibit the publication of, of, of information, and, and the courts, you know, have to play a role before uh, anything can happen. Uh, like uh, the federal police can show up and start rooting through people's uh, desk drawers and underwear drawers, actually, as was the case uh, in Australia. Australia does not have an explicit guarantee of uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. There is an implicit uh, right that's been found by the high court, but it, the high court has also uh, found that that's not a defense against defamation suits. So, you know, one has to imagine that if you're an investigative journalist in Australia, and there are many, uh, and they are courageous and, and talented and doing important work, there is a, a chilling effect of, 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 of this sort of um, raid uh, playing out. And it's, it seems like cold comfort. I mean, this is just my own, you know, faraway American perspective sitting here in London. Uh, the idea that, okay, now that you have to get the government's permission before you can prosecute a journalist. Well, who's the government? Uh, mm. I mean, I, I don't, that wouldn't do much for me if I was in, engaged in investigative journalism in Australia and somebody was leaking me classified documents. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that I would have a whole lot more confidence that the government would somehow protect me. And I mean, and this government hasn't been one interested in protecting journalists or its people. I mean, um, quite recently, it's it's sort of not had as much coverage in the media, but there are lots of um, the government has been trying to eat away at all sorts of privacy laws. It's been trying to get back doors built into all sorts of technology that would not only impact Australians, but would impact people worldwide. Mm. And so it's very clear that this the government at the moment is not interested at all in any protection. And so the, the idea that which is why when I read this, the, <laughs> the attorney general being like, well, you have to get my permission. I'm like. Mate, you're happy to give that permission. It seems clear, like you're in on this. It's almost surprising, though, that, uh, you know, a Western democracy such as Australia wouldn't have these prote protections built in. Scott Morrison, though, has had a very difficult time with the media. And, and it seems now that people might be a bit afraid to do their job. Yeah, look, I think it's it's interesting, and it may be related to the fact that I, that um, Australians have often thought of themselves having similar protections to Americans, partly, I think, because of uh, America's sort of cultural hegemony. Um, but actually, as you say, we don't have freedom of speech protected. And so what you often see is people sort of saying, well, we should have we should have this, this and this. And you're like, well, actually, no, if we were in America, we might have been in this situation. Here in Australia, we don't. And... I think there are lots of things in Australia, there are lots of um, legislative uh, curiosities, perhaps, that reflect a very different um, country or a formation of a very different country to either the UK or the US. For example, the fact that Australia had some, you know, a series of policies known as the White Australia Policy until the mid-70s, which meant that you could only migrate to Australia if you were a white European until very recently. And, you know, these sorts of policies are hangovers and you might not think of them as directly related to things like freedom of speech and so on. But if you have a country that is based on very conservative, socially conservative values, it lends you to think, well, actually, there is a lot more going here than, than meets the eye. And Australia is maybe in a different bucket than perhaps the US and the UK. Hmm. Although the UK, it must be said, has prior restraint laws. The US had Jim Crow laws Fair. in the, mm. in yeah, the American course, South, you know, well into the 60s. So, you know, we have our own problems in the United States. But if you're if you're looking specifically at, at freedom of speech, mm. uh, I mean, in the American context, there is a, a deep 
libertarian tradition there. And, and uh, Pew, I think, back in 2015, surveyed people in 38 different countries. And it was interesting to see that Australians, on the issue of uh, desire for freedom of speech protections, uh, came in fairly low on the list, uh, below Mexico and Venezuela, uh, above the mean, but just just a bit. So uh, that, that, I think, ties back to this idea that Australia was a country built, or the modern version of it was built on essentially convicts who have, and there's a book called The Fatal Shore that looks at all these elements of Australian culture, have a sort of a high dependence on authority, but a low regard for it. Because like convicts, you highly depend on the authority, but you don't mm. like them at all. And so that I think lends itself, and also the sort of the idea of a tall poppy syndrome or, or the idea that nobody should put their head above the parapet because they think that they're better than everyone else. And so there's this kind of egalitarian, but sort of almost military, militarily egalitarian um, view in Australia, Mm. which is actually in opposition to the libertarian culture of of the US. Peter, the publisher of your newspaper last week had a, quite a strong plea and, uh, you know, hitting, hitting back at uh, the yeah. White House for uh, attacks on freedom of the press. So not only are there protections in the U.S., but now there also seems a time where the whole industry has to sort of do its own thing to protect itself, to protect uh, the rights of reporters and newspapers. Yeah, that was unfortunately not the first time that the publisher of the New York Times, A.G. Salzberger, felt the need uh, to very directly address the Trump administration in terms of attacking the press, demonizing the press. Uh, you know, this whole enemy of the people label that we hear from Trump uh, is has more than just symbolic consequences. I mean, I mean, let's remember that uh, Khashoggi, the, the uh, opinion columnist for The Washington Post, who we know was murdered by the Saudi Arabian government uh, inside the consulate in, in Istanbul. I mean, the president of the United States looked at that case and looked at the conclusion from his intelligence people that that's really what happened and said very publicly, well, the Saudis spend $100 billion a year on arms from the U.S., so that's that's more important. Uh, and that, that certainly has uh, a very chilling effect for, for journalists who are around the world. My colleague Declan Walsh, uh, who's mm. our Cairo bureau chief, you know, we learned uh, just, just uh, the other day, uh, was uh, in danger uh, after some reporting uh, in Egypt. And the Trump administration actually knew about it and did not tip him off. He's an Irish citizen. They uh, left it to the Irish government. The Irish government eventually got him out of there. He's been able to go back and do his reporting uh, safely. But we certainly do not feel as American journalists or journalists working for American news organizations around the world that our government has our back in the same way in which we once did. Have you felt that in Australia that the government has your back in past? When <laughs> I mean, I am, I, th- I can speak sort of as somebody associated with, with media organizations, but also as a citizen who is not only black and Muslim, but a migrant. And I don't think Australia, the Australian government, um, is in a. To give you an example, there was there was a citizen, an Australian citizen, who went to visit their family in Sudan. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago now, uh, in South Sudan, went missing, and the government was kind of like, you know what, you're on your own, and and. I think, t- sadly, perhaps if, you know, if that individual was um, drinking beer in Bali and wore the wrong, you know, swimming costume, like the government might protect them then, or they were reporting on a particular thing that made the government look um, in a particular light, perhaps. But 
if I'm perfectly honest, most of the time governments are self-interested and we're not living in a time where governments are compassionate, where governments are willing to go out of their way to do things um, that will protect the most vulnerable in their communities. Journalists at this point in time are some of the most vulnerable in, in the communities and do play an important role, but often that role is challenging the very governments they serve. And so, yeah, it's not a particularly hopeful time. Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Peter Goodman, thank you both. In a moment, potty about pots. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Bache. Grayson Perry is one of the UK's best love artists. He's back with his first commercial exhibition in seven years. Monocle's Robert Bound has this to say. Grayson Perry's first commercial show for seven years at London's Victoria Miro Gallery is titled Super Rich Interior Decoration and features the sort of witty vases that made the artist famous, as well as wall hangings, a rug and a selection of arch items, handbags, a yoga mat that are all a little easier on the pocket. From the vibrant colours and clever titles to the uncanny social commentary, it's all Uber Grayson. Come on, darling, it's Freeze Week, and you always call living artists by their first names. This time, however, Perry's faultless crosshairs are trained on that biggest of contemporary art big game, the collectors themselves. Thin Woman with Painting is a vase featuring a cartoonish art maven stultified by a canvas. Shopping for Meaning features Perry himself in drag, looking rich and Xanaxed to hell outside Bond Street boutiques. Large expensive abstract painting is a tapestry emblazoned with woke buzzwords, stitched to resemble that most treasured of contemporary art trophies, a Gerhard Richter abstract. This last work was designed to be an amalgam of dozens of tasteful and expensive abstract paintings that Perry found when he googled art collectors' homes. Perry is a fine artist. He fires beautiful pots, draws well, and mixes beauty with intellect and the decorative with the significant, with the raw talent of very few others. Perry's work is important to see during this, London's unofficial art week, because it comments on the commercial at the same time as being it. While Perry's great gift as a communicator send up the contemporary art world's seriousness for cash and its flaccid critical muscle with gay abandon. Biting the hand that feeds him, or just nuzzling a manicured mitt? Perry's are pots with purpose indeed. For Monocle, I'm Robert Pound. Rob Bound there, and that is it for today's programme. Monocle's House View, produced by Augusta Machilari and researched by Yolinga Fan and Sam Johannes. Our studio managers, Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 20 hundred hours London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time, 1300 in New York City. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.